you got a Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. You ever had one of those moments where you ask somebody why they did something? Maybe you're talking to your kid or whoever, and you, you asked them what the reason was why they did something, and you kind of were taken aback, like you had to stop and say, what, what did you just say? This past week, we started kindergarten at our, our, with our boys. They made it through their first full week of kindergarten, and we are still alive. I'm exhausted. I think I was just as tired as they were, um, but we made it through school. Now, before we started kindergarten, um, it was time at our house to get haircuts. Uh, I don't know if you've caught on, but I like short hair at my house, and, uh, and so we like to keep our, our boys' hair trimmed up nice and neat. If you like long hair, that's your thing. But at our house, we kind of like it clean cut. And Kim does all the haircutting in our house, and so it makes it kind of nice. And so the boys' hair was starting to get a little long before we started school. And on our boys especially, um, the way that their hair grows, they get this little thing that we call a rat tail in the back. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Back in the day, I think they used to call them a Gucci um, but we called it a rat tail, and it begins to grow on our boys, and it gets a little long. And so I told one of our boys, Will, I said, okay, son, it's time for you to go get your rat tail cut off because it's starting to look a little bad. And he does not like to get his hair cut, but he especially does not like to get this thing cut off. And so we asked him, I said, son, why is it that you don't want to have this thing cut off, son? It looks bad. You know, this is not in style. This is not 1985. This thing needs to go away. And he looked at me and he told me, Dad, he said, he said don't, don't cut off my rat tail. Don't cut off my rat tail. Because, Dad, it cushions, it cushions my head if I hit my head. <laughs> and, I, and so I said, okay. I said, okay, son, well, you're still getting rid of it. So I went and asked Kim. I said, Kim, did you hear? This is what he told me as to why we can't give him a haircut. Because his rat tail cushions his head. And she said, oh, I got one even better than that. She asked him. She said, Will, why, why can't we cut off your rat tail? And she, he said, no, no, Mom, I love it. I love it because when I run, it flaps in the breeze. You know? <laughs> and so I'm visualizing very in the very near future, the mullet is going to make a comeback at my house so that it can flap in the breeze uh, for my son. We have these moments all the time where they do stuff, like we're getting ready for church and they don't want to get dressed, and we say, why don't you want to get dressed? Well, I don't want to wear my fancy pants, you know, and all these things. But, but this morning, in all sincerity, I, I want to ask this question. In all seriousness, I want to ask, I want to begin with this. Why do you do what you do? Why are you who you are? Why do you make the choices that you make? Why do the words come out of your mouth that come out of your mouth? Why do you choose to go to work, choose to go to school? Why do you choose to be the person that you are, to have the work ethic that you are, to have the, the morals and the conduct that you do? You know, the reality is because of the fast-paced nature of our lives, it can be easy just to roll through this life and go through the motions and never stop to ask ourselves, why do I do what I do. But according to Scripture, there should be one particular thing that motivates us. Let's take, for instance, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says this, that whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What exactly does that mean, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? You know, if you were to go just a few verses later to Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, this is what Paul says. He said, once again, verse 23, whatever you do, 
work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And if we were to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, this is going to be on the screen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says this. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so according to Paul, who is writing under the influence, under the inspiration of God, all of life, every part of our being, ought to be motivated by the desire to bring glory to God, to do everything in the name of Jesus for His sake. Back in the 90s, there was this fad that came about of these bracelets that said WWJD. And that bracelet was intended to remind you to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Maybe you saw those bracelets, maybe you still even have one. Now the truth is, is that many times... We know what Jesus would do, right? Because we have read what he did and what he said, and so we know what he would do. The question instead is, am I motivated enough to actually do what Jesus would do? Or to put it another way, am I willing to live my life in such a way that it brings glory to God and that it points to him? And so this morning, I want to go back to the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, and I want us to work through this chapter and to see how Paul gives us a path. He gives us a way to live our life so that everything we do can be done for Jesus' name every single day. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. The first thing I want us to see here is that living for Jesus' name requires focus. Look in verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul begins this chapter in Colossians by telling us, by giving us a call to set our minds on heavenly things. We just read in verse 1, he says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you have an NIV translation, you read that it says that we are to set our hearts on heavenly things. Or if in the New Living Translation, I love how it says it here, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now, when the Bible speaks of heart, it's speaking of the entirety of who we are. It's our mind, it's our will, it's our emotions. And so Paul is referring to our entire being here. So he's basically saying, set everything that you are, every thought, every emotion, every desire, every decision, every action, every reaction on Christ. And so if we are going to truly live our lives... In the name of Jesus, we must first set our eyes on heavenly things. Now, why is it that we should do that? Let's go back to verse 1. He said there, if you have been raised with Christ. And so we do this because we have died with Christ. I think of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 that says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. And so if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, if you have given your life to him in salvation, then your old life, the Bible says, is no more. It is dead and gone. And you are walking in a new life which belongs to Jesus. And because of that, the Bible tells us that we are to completely, to wholeheartedly pursue the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the desires of Christ. Now let's be honest and say that, getting, that, that it's easy to get it caught up in earthly pursuits, isn't it? It's easy to stop and to think, you know, if I can just get that promotion, if I can just work a little harder and get that promotion, if I can just make that purchase, if I can just find that relationship, if I can just help my kids to succeed, if I can just afford that vacation. Now, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. There's there's nothing inherently wrong with earthly success. There's nothing inherently wrong with earthly gain. Those are all good things, and God desires that we work hard for those things. But when they become all that we pursue, when they become the end goal rather than the glory and renown of Jesus Christ, then that's where it becomes a problem. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 when he's talking on the Sermon on the Mount about how we shouldn't worry and fret over clothing and food and drink. And then he sums it up in, verse six, in chapter 6, verse 33. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so how do we set our eyes on heavenly things? as it says here. I believe there's a lot of different parts to this. I believe part of it is going to be what we're going to talk about in a minute and dwelling on the Word of God, which, which we see later in this chapter. But I believe another part of it is that, we, that to set our eyes on the things above means that we look for Christ and the opportunities that He's given us to be His hands and feet here, now. That we look at this world through the eyes of Jesus and we see how we can live out His will in our everyday lives. That we begin to look for what Pastor Tim from Brinkley Heights tells our kids at Street Reach every year. We begin to look for divine appointments where heaven and earth might collide because we are doing the work of Jesus. And if we do so, if we begin to see through his eyes, I believe we'll see things very differently. Let me explain it this way. How many of you have ever heard of the term mom goggles? Anybody ever heard of that term? Maybe, maybe not. Well, it refers to the ability of a mom to look at anything that their kid does, every picture that they draw, every project that they make, every Play-Doh creation, every time the little girl goes and puts on makeup. When the mom sees it, they see something beautiful. For instance, let's imagine that my boys, that one of my boys went and drew a picture. Now, they're not great artists. They're five years old. They're not very good. But if they came to me, they might show me that picture, and I might say, man, that, that's great, son. Looks good. Looks really good. That's, that's a good use of color there, buddy. You know, next time, let's try to keep our colors in the lines, or maybe just on the paper would be good, you know? But if they took that to Kim, what would Kim's reaction be? oh my gosh, this is beautiful. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Let me clear something off the fridge. We're going to hang it everywhere. Oh, this is gorgeous. Every mom has that instinct. You know why? Because they see past the mess. They see past the imperfections. And they see the heart of the child in the creation. Isn't that true? The mom can see something different. 
because they're looking through the eyes as a mother. Well, we need the eyes of Christ to be able to see past the mess, past the imperfection, to see God's will and God's desire in a broken world. To see people who are in need of a Savior, not people to be hated. To see opportunities to show Christ's love. I believe that's part, that's a big part of what it means to set our eyes on heavenly things. That we would see how Jesus would desire us to live in a heavenly way right here in a very sinful world. But it doesn't end there. You know, beginning, living our lives for Jesus begins with a focus, but it doesn't end there. It also involves, to live our, for Jesus' name requires a trade. Let's go to verse 5. We're going to read all the way down through verse 16. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so Paul gives us a pretty extensive list here, right? Of that which we should put off and that which we should put on. It's a trade in a sense. Discard these sinful behaviors over here, these sinful attitudes, and put on these Christ-like, godly behaviors. Now he covers the, the whole gamut here, right? Of attitudes, actions, words, deeds. But understand this, this is more than just a checklist. This is not Paul giving us, okay, if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to do this, 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 and this. No, because we get, we get this from, from Colossians chapter 3. Look back in verse 9. The second half of verse 9, this is what Paul says is the motivation for why we throw these sinful behaviors off. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so once again, we have the same fact. Paul goes right back to that same idea. Because we have died with Christ, our old self is dead. And so a new self, a new self lives in us, it's been given to us. And so because we have put to death our old self, we must then also put to death sinfulness in our lives. But Paul actually goes, goes one step farther here. He says that we got to put it to death. And I think there's no better way to put this than to say that when it comes to sin in our lives, we have to be ruthless 
and killing it. To be ruthless and rooting it out and eliminating it from our lives. Because we live in Christ. Christ lives in us. Now, if you, uh, let's say that you got up tomorrow, you walked out, and, uh, and you saw a snake, a poisonous snake, whether it be in your yard or even worse, in your house. What would you do? After you, if you were a, a, a lady or maybe a guy, I don't know, after you screamed and ran, um, you eventually would come back and would want to eliminate that snake, right? You would want to chop his head off and kill that snake. Now, now the battle doesn't end at the fact that you killed the snake. You have to discard of the snake properly, correct? Because maybe you know this, but a dead snake can still bite, can it? I read a true story uh, this past week from 2014 of a chef who was in China. He was a a very well-known chef, and he was known for preparing this special dish, dish called cobra soup. And that cobra soup involved using the body of a cobra. And so he got this cobra, he chopped the head off, he went on to cook the soup, came back 20 minutes later to discard of the head, the snake bit him, he died. That was a pricely soup, right? He thought, oh, 20 minutes later, I'll be good. He grabs the snake, snake bites him, still has venom in it, he dies. Sometimes old sins can come back to harm us can come back to bite us if we are not diligent to kill it, to eliminate the source, to eliminate the temptation in our life, to do what Paul says here and to put it to death. John Owen, who was a pastor in the 1600s, theologian, said this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Isn't that so true? But all too often we fail to put sin to death. We fail to eliminate it from our lives, and instead we toy with it, and we think that we're okay. Let me show you a picture real quick. This is an actual picture. This was not Photoshop. You see what's going on here? here? This is from Alberta, Canada in June of 2017. Here is a guy who is outside mowing his lawn in the middle of a tornado. Now, the story goes from the news. This is a true story. This is not a fake photo. That this, that this, this wife decided to take a nap. The husband was set on, he said, I'm going to go cut the grass. So he went out to cut the grass. She goes to take a nap. Well, the, the couple's nine-year-old daughter came and woke up the mom and said, Mom, I'm scared. There's a tornado outside the back of the house. The wife walks outside, takes a picture of the tornado, doesn't even think about the fact that her husband is cutting the grass still, posts it on the Internet, and people immediately respond to her and say, What is your husband doing? <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, now, according to the man, he said, oh, I was keeping an eye on the tornado, and it, it was heading away, you know, so I was safe. I was okay. But the reality is, come on, seriously. I mean, there was a giant tornado pinning its way through your backyard in the backfield, and you're out there cutting your grass. Now, I'm going to be honest and say, I've cut the grass in the rain. I've even cut the grass in a little lightning. But I don't think I'd be that dumb. I don't think I would be that stupid to be out there cutting the grass and there is a tornado that could very easily take my life in an instant, just in the distance. But isn't that how we can be tempted to treat sin? I'll just keep an eye on it. You know, I don't have to eliminate that relationship from my life. I don't have to eliminate that source of temptation. It's okay. I'll just keep it close enough for me to enjoy things, but far enough away to prevent it from causing me damage. But the truth is, is that Paul says to kill it, that the Scripture says to kill it, to put it to death. Now, we don't have to have time to go into detail about all the simple behaviors that are laid out in chapter 3 here, 
but, but we can say this, is that, I must say this, is that the first five things that Paul mentions all relate back to sexual sin. He says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now, if ever you thought that the Bible doesn't apply to today, I would suggest that you go back and you read that verse. Because the same things that Paul needed to preach about then, the same problems, the same sins that plagued the Colossian church are the same sins that that are prevalent today, aren't they? They're the same things that fight to bring people down today. And just so you know, just just to be clear, I would most definitely consider myself old school when it comes to the Bible's understanding of sexuality and sin. That what the Bible called sin in Paul's day and all the way back into the Old Testament is still sin today. I still believe and will always believe, regardless of what the courts say, regardless of what Hollywood says, regardless of what the schools even say, that sex is intended to be between a man and a woman who have entered into the lifelong covenant of marriage. Only then. I still believe that homosexuality and transgenderism are sin. They are distortions of what God created to be good. I still believe that pornography and that any form of sex outside of the bonds of marriage, of biblical marriage, are plagues upon our society. And they destroy families, that they destroy individuals. I still believe that couples are playing with fire when they choose to live together outside of marriage. Thinking that they're going to test drive marriage, they're actually setting themselves on a pathway to divorce. And I still believe that men and women who are not married must be very cautious and careful of spending time together lest they be tempted to sin or lest they even give the the look of wrongdoing. When the Bible called it sin, it's sin for eternity. And let me just say this to parents. It is the responsibility of every parent to teach their children these things in an age-appropriate way. Because if you don't take the time to speak to your kids about this, the world will. And you will not like the message they will receive from the world. Because it will lead them away from the Word of God. Now next, Paul moves from sexual sin to a list of sinful behaviors that all refer to how we relate to one another. He says anger, which is a smoldering hatred. Wrath, which is anger that breaks out into action. Malice, which is evil actions that are intended to cause harm. Slander, which is speech that is intended to cause harm. He mentions obscene talk, which is crude language, but it also includes any words that are spoken with the intention of hurting another individual. So that could be bullying, criticizing, hatefulness. He speaks of lying here. And I believe, I I, I read verse 11 to say that he's speaking of racism and prejudice here. He says in verse 11, he says, Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so Paul says, God says, put it all to death. And then he says, make a trade. And he says, take where that sinfulness was and replace it with godliness in the form of compassion kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and most importantly, he says here, love. 
And then he says to put on the peace of Christ and to dwell richly in the word of God. We have to remember that putting on is just as important as putting off. That if we, to, to walk away from sin, but not fully walk toward godliness will not last. We will eventually fall back into sin. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the parable in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, uh, 43, when he talked about the unclean spirit. He said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. I think we can apply that truth to this, that if we eliminate sin from our life and we do not replace it with godliness, if we eliminate that temptation in our life and we do not replace it with the Word of God, you know what happens? There's an emptiness there. And eventually sin will come to fill the emptiness. And it will march right back on in. That we have to fill our lives with the word of God, with the ways of God. And that, folks, is how I believe that we come to living our lives in the name of Jesus. For the glory of God. Working as unto God and not unto men. As we daily replace impurity with purity. As we daily put our focus on heavenly things, as we daily replace anger and prejudice with compassion and love and forgiveness, as we replace obscene talk and hurtful words with kindness and forgiveness, as we replace pride with humility, and as we replace the influence of the world with the influence of the Word. And not just doing so because it sounds good, because we think it might earn us some type of credit, but doing so because we are walking daily with the Savior. And as we walk with the Savior, we live like the Savior. Would you join me in prayer? As we come to this time of invitation this morning, as usual, there are two invitations that need to be offered. First of all, there's an invitation to us as believers Maybe you look at this list from Paul's life and you realize that there is something in your life that is not right. There is some sin that you have not put to death. There is some sin, some temptation that you have allowed to continue to dwell in you. My challenge to you my, from the Word of God is to put it to death. To walk away from that sin and walk to our Savior. Maybe today you need to recommit yourself to living in the name of Jesus. You ask yourself about your life. You pause and you think about your life. And you say, you know what? I cannot genuinely say that everything I do is in the name of Jesus. I cannot attach Jesus' name to every behavior. Every word that comes from my mouth. Every thought that is in my mind. Well, today is the day to recommit yourself, to say, I want to live in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. Today, pray that prayer and recommit yourself to the Savior. But today, maybe you're sitting in this room and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. You have never surrendered your life to Him. Well, let me take you all the way back to verse 1. It says there that you need to die with the Savior so that you can rise with the Savior. 
If you want eternal life, the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. The only way to a relationship with the one and only God is through Jesus Christ, His Son. Today, He is inviting you to begin a relationship with Him. How do you begin that relationship? You begin it by the confession of your sin. To say to to God, to pray out to God and say, God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have made mistakes and I have offended you. To confess that sin, to repent of that sin, and to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing that He is the only one who can forgive you and the only one who will forgive you. That His blood on the cross paid the price for your sin and you can have eternal life today. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, I pray that you would move in this place. I pray that if there are those that need to make decisions, whether that's a believer making a recommitment, or whether that's an unbeliever, someone who is not a Christian, becoming a Christian today and receiving eternal life, I pray that today would be that day we get to celebrate with them as they make that decision public. In Jesus Christ, the name that we do pray.